Midnight a Horror Anthology Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Cleaver, and I'm sitting here with a large, black, fluffy cat. His name is Binks. Say hi, Binks. He's purring. But today, I'm going to continue my journey through Season 2 of Tales from the Crypt. I'm going to focus on one episode at a time. Because you know what? What the hell? It's my favorite show of all time, and I think that they each deserve their own recognition. Yep, there he goes. There's his caller. Here, take off. Take off. Oh, come on, Banks, go. Today we are focusing on Season 2, Episode 10, The Ventriloquist's Dummy. This one has an air date of June 5th, 1990. So this, this puppy's almost 33 years old. Oh, man, time flies. But it's written by Frank Darabont, who also directed The Green Mile, The Shawshank Redemption, The Mist, The Majestic, and he created The Walking Dead before AMC got cheap and fired him. The Walking Dead these days is a bit of a joke. If I'm being honest, I, I used to love it more than anybody. I say it reached its crescendo about season five. And then it kind of just lost its way. You know, you start losing your main characters. You know, we lost. You know what? Spoilers. I, it's just kind of a shell of its former self. And it ended it ended recently and even though nobody seems to be watching it anymore they're, they're doubling down actually they're quadrupling down there's like two or three spinoffs and a movie no wait they axed the movie and now it's just episodes look binks this isn't gonna work bro i want you as my co-host indeed i need you as my co-host because i can't do this by myself anymore i'm losing my brain but you you gotta quit being loud I know you're fluffy, and you can't help it, but just calm down, okay? But yeah, Frank Darabont, he also wrote one of, or one of my favorite horror films of all time, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Actually, he wrote The Blob 1988 as well, so good pedigree, good horror pedigree on that, man. The director is Richard Donner. Now, where you may remember Dick Donner from is he is an executive producer. He is one of the five minds that brought Tales from the Crypt to the screen. Him and Joel Silver... And Walter Hill, and Robert Zemeckis, and David Geiler. So he's truly one of the patron saints of this series. He's also got a really, really good filmography. He directed early episodes of The Twilight Zone. Well, late episodes of The Early Twilight Zone. Season 5. He directed the infamous Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. So he's definitely got anthology pedigree in there. He also directed The Omen, 1976. One of the best horror films of all time, in my humble opinion. Superman in 1978, Lethal Weapon, actually all of the Lethal Weapons up to 1998. Just a good guy. He seemed like a really good guy. And actually, he did Scrooged with Bobcat Goldthwait, who pops up in this episode. Yeah, two years earlier, Dick Donner did Scrooged with Bobcat Goldthwait. Apparently, he had a good time working with him. There's some other Crypt alumni in there, too. I believe Carol Kane was in there, and she's in the... Actually, she's in the next episode that we're going to do. 
which is interesting. <laughs> Not one of my favorites, but I still love it because it's Tales from the Crypt. But anywho, we open. The theme is the ventriloquist dummy. So naturally, Mr. Crypty has a ventriloquist dummy. So that's the opening. <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound too shitty. Um, yeah, we open up on a, an act. Looks like it's in the 50s. And it's Don Rickles performing. And he's got a fedora on and a suit. He looks really dapper. And uh, he's, he's kind of, he's obviously got his ventriloquist dummy there with a Morty. And he's, uh, he's vamping. He's killing it. He is swinging for the fences and everybody is digging it. Including a young boy with horn rim glasses who is just having a ball. He is just enamored with the entire lifestyle, with the act and everything that comes with it. And uh, Rickles, he's, he's keeping it pretty family-friendly, but you can tell he's slipping a little bit into Don Rickles here and there. Because obviously Don Rickles was an infamous insult comic. But this was this was uh, back in the day when insult comics was, uh, it was a little bit more creative. And it wasn't just like hurling slurs at each other, which is essentially what it is, what it is now. He's telling these jokes, and he actually starts berating an old man for for getting a little bit too carried away with laughing, and he tells him to quit dying in the middle of his set. Awesome, awesome stuff, yeah. He's doing a great job. Clearly he's, clearly, this is his niche. He's found his niche. He's talented, and his name is Ingalls. He's actually named after Ghastly Graham Ingalls, who was an artist on Tales from the Crypt. He did some of the most infamous stories in the history of Tales from the Crypt. So after he winds the whole experience up, the young boy, Billy Goldman is his name, meets him in the back room for an autograph. And uh, Ingalls tells him, like, hey, you need any pointers? You you hit me up, kid. And he's like, gee, thanks, Mr. Ingalls, because this is the 50s. It's, you know, it's adorable. But he seems like a genuinely nice guy. Then meanwhile, back in the green room, he runs into this really attractive gal, I believe is his girlfriend. And he lets her know, you know, he's like, I'm feeling a little bit down tonight. I don't know if we can go out. And then you hear Morty say... Don't listen to him, toots. Let's hit the town. And uh, Ingalls just kind of looks a little perturbed by that. And already they're kind of setting up this odd, you know, psychosexual concept behind Morty the puppet. Or the, sorry, the dummy. Ingalls struggling to reconcile with that. But uh, he relents. He goes out with the gal. And later that night, Billy is practicing his ventriloquism, fawning over the autograph. And it turns out that there is a hotel fire nearby which claimed the life of the beautiful young woman and we find out soon apparently maimed mr ingles and took him out of the ventriloquism game as it were so here we are 1990 it would seem and bobcat goldwaith rolls up i just want to take this moment to say i freaking love bobcat goldwaith he he seems like such an easygoing guy in real life 
I know him from the Police Academy movies because I grew up on those. Let's see. He was in Police Academy 2, their first assignment, Police Academy 3, Back in Training, and Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol, which unfortunately means he had to sit out Police Academy 5, Assignment Miami Beach, Police Academy 6, City Under Siege, and Police Academy number 7, Mission Moscow. Ah. Uh, I always wonder what would happen if I actually had useful information in my brain where all this nonsense seems to be stored. Because I, I don't... Can anybody else give all the accurate subtitles for the Police Academy series? Because I would, I, you, you would be my best friend, I believe. He rolls up to this, uh, this uh, kind of rundown-looking house, and uh, he starts knocking on the door. He says, Mr. Ingalls? I don't know if you remember me. My name's Billy Goldman. You told me that you would give me advice about 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, I'll just uh, come by to see how it's going. And inside you can hear him kind of like saying, what are you doing? Go away. But uh, he persists and persists. So eventually Don Rickles opens the door and lets him in. And he's kind of disheveled. He looks like he's seen better days. Poor guy's been through the ringer. And uh, Billy is just telling him about, you know, how he's going to be at amateur night tonight at the same nightclub that he performed at which is useful because you can reuse the set so always thinking and Ingalls is just kind of you know put off by the whole thing I think he just wants to forget about it you know clearly like he's got his hand in a giant bandage he's just he's been maimed he doesn't want to hear about dummies even when he goes to he finds the suitcase that says Morty on it which is apparently where Ingalls keeps his dummy that he used to use and Ingles gets really defensive immediately. He says, what are you doing? What are you, get, go, don't touch that. He's like, is that is this what you want to do? Come here and stir up bad memories? And, you know, you kind of feel for Billy in this scene because he, you can tell he just, he hero worships Mr. Ingles and he just wants him to be involved in some capacity. And at this point, Mr. Ingles is kind of just, he says, I'll think about it. And then, you know, Billy says, okay, I'll think about it. Later that night, we cut to amateur night and there's some gal up on stage and she sounds like, well, the MC backstage says it. He says it sounds like a dying cat up there. Not far off. But she's doing a really good baton trick. By the way, the MC uh, is the same actor who played Harold from Friday the 13th Part 3, who died from a cleaver to the chest after not wiping his ass. Such an odd detail in Friday the 13th Part 3. It's like, come see in 3D. This slovenly <laughs> Italian man. Uh, randomly eat a bunch of shit in his own store and then go take a dump, not wipe. I, I <laughs> Friday the 13th Part 3 tangent. Anyway, so he eventually brings Billy up. Billy's surprised to see Mr. Ingalls did show up. He's in the back keeping things low profile. And Billy Goldman takes to the stage. Now, to give you a viewpoint on how well Billy Goldman does in his ventrilo ventriloquism act, he does only moderately better than Michael Richards did at the Comedy Factory. He doesn't, he's, he doesn't hurl slurs, but it's pretty clear that this kid does not have what it takes. I say kid, he's a 30, 40 year old man, but uh, yeah, he doesn't have any technique. His jokes are shit. You can see his lips moving. He doesn't know how to work the audience. The audience calls out the joke before he gets to it. And you can kind of just see Mr. Ingalls in the back kind of just solemnly walk away, but it, it doesn't go well, but that's why they call it amateur night. I don't know what everybody was expecting. I gotta give him. I gotta give him props though, because you know, even getting up there and putting yourself out there is intimidating. It is daunting. I don't know. I I myself am very insecure and very. I have a <laughs> rock bottom self esteem, and even recording this right now 
is a feat of strength you you couldn't even possibly imagine. <laughs> so I get it going up there in front of a bunch of people and you know having the confidence to say I have within me the talent to actually be worthy of your attention for 20 30 minutes and that alone demands a level of confidence that I don't think most people would be blessed with. Um so confidence yeah but talent not a lick. He meets Mr. Ingalls afterwards at the bar. By the way, there's two people having a conversation at the bar, and the, they're just uh, extras, no lines. It's uh, director Richard Donner and Don Rickles' daughter. But Billy comes up to him, and he says, uh, you know what, just you know, be honest. I, I sucked, right? And Ingalls, like to his credit, he, he kind of gives it to him as well as you can. You know what I mean? He's like, okay, I'll, I'll tell you this, okay, you don't, you don't have any, your jokes are awful, you don't know how to work the audience. Everything I said, you know what I mean? Bad form, everything. And he's just like, maybe you should just look for another line of work. And what he said was crushing, but the way he said it was, you could tell that he, it kind of, you know, pained him to have to tell him that. It was almost like him telling his younger self, you know what I mean? If he didn't have the talent to go forward. And Billy just says, okay, well, um, thanks for coming. He's very dejected, but he does say, thank you for coming. Uh, I'll catch you around. And at this point, a woman of the night, comes by and propositions him. She says, hey, you remind me of my grandfather. I happen to have a family member discount going on right now. <laughs> oh, that's a good line. That's a good line. I don't know. A lot of amateur, I don't know if amateur night's a good racket, a good place for a lady of the night. I say lady of the night, I'm not sure if that's coming across. Sex worker, I think we're supposed to be calling. But he turns her down. You know, he's like, I'm an old man, just leave me alone. And then he kind of motions to his hand and his hands kind of you know moving it's kind of shaking and he's like no no and eventually he does relent and he says uh excuse me miss sex worker i got money just burning a hole in my pocket let's make this happen which leads me to my george carlin quote of the day which is not a real thing but it is now his stance on prostitution was selling is legal fucking is legal why isn't selling fucking legal? Why is it illegal to sell something that it's perfectly legal to give away? That's my George Carlin quote of the day. <laughs> That's his stance on it. That's my stance on it, too. I don't get it. I don't know if I'd ever, I don't know, enlist the services. Obviously, I'm a married man. Um, I suppose it'd have to depend on the price, actually. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no price in the world. Later that night, outside of the club, seemingly... Billy Goldman's having a bit of a meltdown, beating his dummy. That's not a euphemism. He wasn't jerking it. He was he was beating on his dummy. Threw him in the garbage. And he hears a commotion from a little ways away. He runs up. There's a bunch of people crowded around this car. And there is this dead woman in the car who happens to be, you guessed it, the sex worker with the great pickup line. By the way, you're going to hear my cat's bell every now and then. There's nothing I can do about it. He just knows I'm recording and he's a big jerk. He's looking at me. Don't look at me. Billy covers the escort with his coat and he says, I smell gasoline, nobody smoke. So apparently, Mr. Ingalls, I don't know how he comes to this realization. I think he probably spotted sex worker on the way out. Um, apparently he killed her and didn't get a chance to light the car on fire like he did the hotel 30 years ago. So Billy goes to his shack and immediately starts accusing him. Keeps saying, like, 
you killed her, didn't you, old man? Just like you did back then. Try to set the fire. And Billy's just like, or sorry, Ingalls is like, no, it wasn't me. He's like, well, then who did it? Who who killed her? And he said, Morty. Billy looks a little bemused. And he begins rationalizing it. He said, Mr. Ingalls, what do you, or sorry, Mr. Ingalls, Morty doesn't, he isn't real. He's just a dummy. He's made out of plastic and wood. Here. At this point, Ingalls starts, you know, almost threatening him. He said, you better, you better get out of here. Quit asking questions. Otherwise, Morty might hurt you. And at this point, this is when he takes down the dummy and starts saying, look, he's not real. He's a dummy. Take a gander. And then he finds out in the suitcase that the dummy is more like a shell of a dummy. It's almost more like a mask. And this is when Mr. Ingalls comes at Billy with a cleaver. A lot of cleavers in this episode. I'm cleaver. There's a cleaver there. And we had Harold. Yeah. Getting cleavery up in here. So, so he's at him with the cleaver. He starts telling him like, you want to see? Do you want to see? And he shows him. He takes the huge bandage off his hand. And he has a, I don't know, conjoined twin on his wrist. That is how he used to control Morty. And it's glorious. <laughs> It's, it's disturbing, it's disgusting, it's practical effects, so it's just super cool. And he says, this is how we, this is obviously how we've been our entire lives, you know. We grew up, we were freaks, we had to deal with that. And uh, one day, we decided to, uh, to make an act out of it, to go on the road. And Morty's kind of pitching in with the, the exposition too, he's like saying, We put our heads together, that was a joke, get it? That's how Morty sounds, by the way. I forgot to say that. Yeah, he sounds like the falsetto voice that I just did. And then Ingle says, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry, kid. You're a nice kid, but I gotta, I gotta kill you." See, ordinarily, Ingles used to dope himself up, or rather, inject something into his arm to keep Morty from, you know, going crazy, especially with the ladies. Turns out Morty likes the ladies, and because he can't do anything with the ladies, it gets him psychotic. And he snaps. He was actually injecting himself when Billy rushed in, knocked the needle out of his arm, called him a junkie, and starts calling him a killer. After hearing this exposition, Morty starts boasting. He says, I'm the funny one. I'm the one who thought up the act. And between that and feeling empathy for Billy, Mr. Ingalls decides to do something that I, I think he probably should have done a long time ago. And he chops his... <laughs> He chops his brother off his hand, arm. I never thought I was going to say that sentence, but I have now. So there it is. <laughs> and as he's chopping off his hand, or sorry, his brother, which is his hand, he says, I'm splitting up the act. Classic. Which now leaves little Morty to wonder about the room. Like the crazy little insane <laughs> conjoined twin that he is. They used to call him Siamese twins, actually. Uh, probably still do in a way, but obviously with the new cultural sensitivity, I believe the the proper colloquialism is conjoined twin and not Siamese twin. This actually reminds me of Basket Case in a way, especially the psychosexual aspect and then the conjoined twin. Uh, maybe Helen Lauder read this story back when he was a kid. Who knows? But yeah, Billy collapses with Ingalls and... Billy's like, you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm free. I'm finally free. And then <laughs> Morty pops up and says, well, uh, you know, 
I'm the one who's free. Sound like a granny. Yeah, he promptly attacks Mr. Ingalls and bites his throat out. And unfortunately, that's the end of Mr. Ingalls. At this point, Bobcat picks up a bat and he decides it's conjoined twin smashing time. <laughs> Among other things. So he's chasing this little <laughs> this little conjoined twin around that's covered in blood. And yeah, he's right, it does look like a like a mutated cabbage patch kid. <laughs> he finally uh kicks him into the air from with a loose floorboard, seesaw style, and then bats him into a meat grinder. A well placed manual meat grinder. And so he's shoving this this little twin down into the meat grinder and slowly turning it. And Morty's just says, please stop. I'll do anything you want. And then Billy just stops for a second. He goes, anything? And then Morty goes, mm-hmm. So we cut to nightclub. Same nightclub, probably. <laughs> Almost definitely. And he's killing it. He's decked out just like Rickles was. He's got a fedora. He's got his hair back in a ponytail, and he's he is killing it. Him and Morty are a complete success. So him and Morty are a complete success up there on stage. He's enjoying it pretty good until a very attractive young woman crosses in front of the stage, and Morty spots her. And we all know what sets little Morty off, don't we? So he's like, "Haba haba yow." And Bobcat's trying to calm him down. He's like, you know what? Stick to the script. <laughs> if you don't, I'm going to chuck you right back in that meat grinder. And then at, at this point, Morty kind of lets him in on a little secret. He says, you know what? I think you're going to find that pretty hard to do. Pretty hard to take care of. And Billy's like, ow, what? what's going on? Ow, ow, ow. And it would appear after the shell of the dummy falls off that Morty has somehow fused himself to Billy's wrist. So now somehow he's in the exact same position that Mr. Ingalls used to be. And this entire, you know, nightclub full of people are now most likely traumatized because they have no idea what they're watching right now. Uh, I like to think about stupid shit like, that. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, the main character. Yeah, he's fucked. His life's probably ruined. But like, think about the people in the audience who just they're they're there for like a nice like light night of comedy, you know, kids are with a babysitter, maybe get laid later. And then they're like, did this fucking, did this little mutant conjoined twin thing just like forge itself onto Bobcat Goldwaite's wrist? I didn't call him Bobcat, obviously, but yeah. So the end is just, uh, yeah, Bobcat screaming and there's your end. Uh, great ending. Terrific. Good outro. Look, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is a 10 out of 10 crypt episode. I think it hits all the right marks. Um, it could be deemed, hypothetically, for uh, insensitivity in the subject of uh, conjoined twins and birth defects in general. Especially, like I said, in, in the more sensitive climate we find ourselves in. But um, 
I don't know. I've always had more of an enlightened view on that. Whenever a certain marginalized section of society is uh, treated as, you know, being, you know, insane or crazy or murderous. My, my take on it is always, okay, well, this particular person is insane. It doesn't reflect on the entire, but I can totally see how, you know, how society would reflect on that. But, uh, but thanks to medical advances, I mean, these things are happening less and less, but the uh, Tales from the Crypt seemed oddly fascinated with this, this time with the conjoined twins, rather. There's uh, no less than at least two other ones that I can think of right off the bat. There is People Who Live in Brass Hearses in Season 5, which I suppose is a bit of a spoiler, I apologize. <laughs> and then in Season 7, there's About Face. So it's not it's definitely not a new concept. I suppose, I guess, here here we find ourselves in Season 2, it is, but... Yeah, it's such a such a strange thing. Uh, I guess folks in the fifties, you know, because obviously the comic this was based off of, apparently they were just kind of fascinated, uh, equally fascinated and repulsed by the concept of the conjoined twin. And although I don't, I don't, I'm not remotely aware of one of this ever happening, like a person having their conjoined twin on their wrist, fairly conveniently, so they could make a killing as, as a ventriloquist. I, I don't know how you would even make a killing as a ventriloquist, but I guess Jeff Dunham did it, and he is pretty racist. I don't know. But yeah, I suppose you could ding it on that. But, I mean, you got terrific performances out of two comedic actors. These are both stand-ups, and as usually is the case, they, they did a great job. I think the reason why comedians have such a success crossing over into into dramatic performance is because the the art or the craft of comedy is so complex that you're already aware of all the mechanisms of human emotion and what it takes to bring those emotions out you know through your actions and through your performance and so i that's why i think that most of the most of the comedic actors who cross over into drama, the the most obvious one being Robin Williams. I, I that's what I think it is. It's just having a really good a good beat on bringing out emotion in somebody. Robin was actually really good friends with Bobcat, one of his best friends. Yeah. He directed him in World's Greatest Dad and he was in Bobcat's uh first directorial effort, Shakes the Clown. He had a a cameo in that as a was he a mime? I think it was a mime. Yeah, I, I love Shakes the Clown. Uh, Freaking great early 90s comedy, if you haven't seen it. Uh, pretty dark. Actually, apropos of last week, Tom Kenny is the bad guy in that, and he is amazing. So check out SpongeBob being a, an evil clown in Shakes the Clown. But Ventriloquist Dummy, as I said, I think that it's the perfect Tales from the Crypt episode. It's either top 10 or top 20 for me. Oh, and I forgot another Siamese, gosh bless it, I keep messing up. Another conjoined twin episode is actually coming later in season two with My Brother's Keeper. So you counted it, 92 episodes, four of which center around Siamese, tw or Siamese twins, conjoined twins. I keep fucking that up. So it's such a strange phenomenon to be, to be focused on. Of course, this was back when, you know, carnivals and sideshows were all their age, you know. It's so, so fascinating in just the short amount of time that I've been alive 
or the short, the small amount of time that we have recorded media that we can witness like how drastically different the social climate is in the human species, whether we're evolving or just simply changing in one way or another. But one thing never changes, and that is that horror under the right circumstances can be hilarious and horrifying at the same time. And I think that the ventriloquist dummy definitely strikes all the right chords. It's got a satisfying ending, a satisfying character arc. Don Rickles and Bobcat Goldwaith, as I said, very, very, very good. And the image of that little or the conjoined twin just running around on his own. I'm so happy this was made in 1990. Otherwise, he would have been like a little CGI creature and it kind of would have taken you out. But no, it's just a bunch of really... I think Todd Masters did the special effects for all these episodes, I believe. I don't know if he did all of them, but I know he did most of them. So Morty, in particular, is a freaking amazing prosthetic and uh, practical effect. It's pretty cool. It's like a little... A little him and Chucky would probably hang out actually, but as far as ventriloquism goes, Dead of Night, nineteen forty-five, which I have yet to cover, but I will shortly. Uh, first that I've been aware of, then a couple episodes of The Twilight Zone, most prolifically The Dummy, with Cliff Robertson, and then of course nineteen seventy-eight Magic, starring Anthony Hopkins and Burgess Meredith, and, and that might be the well, most well-known ventriloquist ventriloquism dummy subgenre of horror uh for a reason because it's this really top psychological horror film which is actually really really intense and disturbing but if you if you want a bloodbath obviously you know stay away because it's more of just a really intense character study but the the dummy in question fats happens to be one of the most terrifying things you can ever look at it's like looking at anthony hopkins in a funhouse mirror and then you made a dummy out of it Actually, the, the the TV spots that they aired for Magic back in 1978 apparently scarred a lot of kids for <laughs> for life back then. Rodney Asher, who did the documentaries Room 237 and The Nightmare, actually did a very short documentary that's on Shutter called Primal Screen, and they actually talk about the memories that they have of this particularly terrifying TV spot. And although I I, I I was I'm too young. I'm still an old bastard, but I'm I was at at this time I'm too young to have seen that TV spot, but I am not too old to remember when I was a kid and this being terrified of these things. Similar to this, you know, like the right trailer, the right poster. I was afraid of video boxes when I was a kid. Especially oh my god, this is embarrassing, but I'm gonna go ahead and share it with you. I was terrified of the box art for Jaws when I was a kid, uh, one, two, three, and four, just something about that large beast with all those teeth. And yeah, I didn't want to go near them. And now Jaws is like my favorite movie, but I, something about it just, so there's something about that childhood fear and ventriloquist dummies definitely tap into that. What's called an uncanny Valley, which is, which is a terminology for how your brain perceives people. And objects that appear to be similar to people, like dolls or dummies or mannequins. And that's that's not even really touched on in this episode, to be honest with you. I mean, the more the more fascinating aspect is definitely Morty. <laughs> Morty the effed up cabbage patch kid. But if you're going through Tales from the Crypt for the first time and 
let's say you're digging it, but you're not loving it, and that there's some that you could skip, this isn't one of them. Uh, the sacrifices, maybe three-sided, four-sided triangle, although I still like that one. I still love all these these episodes, even if they're bad, I, I love them. As I said, ad nauseum, and I will probably tell the story 500 more times, but uh, we used to stay with our dad on the weekends. They were divorced. He would get drunk watching Walker, Texas Stranger and pass out. And we would turn it to Fox and watch the syndicated episodes of Tales from the Crypt. And that's really where my love of horror came from. And although we didn't know at the time that the episodes were cut to shit, we were still, me and my brother, we still loved it. I mean, I'm not sure if he still does, but I know I do. And every week just wondering if I'm going to get freaked out this week or if it's going to be a less freaky episode. But I do I do have fond memories of the ventriloquist dummy. So that'll do it. If, uh, if you can tolerate me, uh, even marginally, uh, rate, review, subscribe, reach out. Uh, if you wanna, if you wanna come on and talk to me, if you wanna ever come on and shoot the shit about one of these anthologies, uh, pick it, get a hold of me, and I'll make it happen. I absolutely love shit talking with people. I usually do, but you know, all my friends are adults, you know, <laughs> with adult problems and adult things. So, so I've been having to swing it solo lately, but. I don't know. I didn't want that to stop stop the podcast from growing because I just have such a fervent love of this particular subgenre, and I just wanted to share it with everybody. But everybody out there in podcast land, you take it easy. I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to be up to next week. I'm kind of doing this as a filler, so I might drop one before too long. And I am thinking uh, the shortlist includes Trilogy of Terror with Karen Black. Dead of Night, 1945, Torture Garden, 1967, and From a Whisper to a Scream, Snoop Dogg's Hood of Horror. It's just a weird, I just have a weird roster. I'll just randomly pick one. And I'll see you guys on the flip side. You take it easy and uh, just do your honest best to stay scared. Just promise me. Love you guys. Bye.